We've heard from a, a lot of people who are practitioners, researchers, policymakers over these two days. Uh, one of the areas that we've had some discussion is in the area of uh, healthcare. This is something that uh, has a number of very interesting security components to it and privacy. So when we think about security in, in healthcare, uh, there are issues having to do with protection of medical equipment and dosages, there's supply chain, there's financial interest, there's privacy of consumer records. Um, these are targets certainly for criminals and for others. But um, I, I wanted to mention a, a, another aspect of this that may not be immediately obvious. There was a, uh, a news report this morning that the same or, or very similar Russian uh, troll farms that were involved in attempting to sow dissent uh, with the election by some of the various activities, the rumors, the political uh, posturing they've had, have also been involved in attempting to sow dissent into American culture by joining forces and, and amplifying the voices of those who are against vaccines to try to add further dissent and distrust of established uh, institutions in the country, uh, they've been echoing a lot of these very same uh, kinds of arguments about trusting vaccinations, trusting the medical establishment. And that's part of our medical uh, arena. So if you think about it, you can go down to uh, your local uh, drugstore and you can go in and you can get a vaccination against flu or measles or shingles. And that's part of the healthcare apparatus that we have throughout the country. All of that needs to be protected. The supply chain, the payroll for the employees, the, the medication records, many of which are controlled by federal law, uh, vaccinations, all kinds of parts of this, this very large healthcare arena. And that's a challenge. And I can't think of anybody who's really better suited to deal with some of those challenges than our final keynote. Uh, Jim Rouse is the CSO of uh, CBS Health and leads the effort to secure their enterprise. Uh, he came to this position when um, CBS and Aetna joined. He was the, previously the CSO at, at uh, Aetna's uh, business division. Uh, he's also been chair of the Health ISAC board, uh, which is the industry sharing association. He's uh, formally the, the head of security at, at uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, Chief Information Security Officer for KPMG, the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation, <coughs> American Express. So this is someone who's had a great deal of experience in high-stress environments. Uh, and he, it's shown in some of the significant industry awards that he's received, including the Avanta Breakaway Leaders Award, the Security Alliance Innovation Award, the ISE Luminary Award, um, the BITS Leadership Award, uh, some of these are listed in the program. Uh, there are many more. Uh, he brings decades worth of experience to an incredibly challenging position, and he's going to tell us about some of those challenges and his vision in his talk to close out the 2019 Serious Symposium. Please join me in welcoming Jim Ralph. Thanks, Scott. So I'm at the point in my career. Can you hear me? Is the mic on? Yeah. Okay, I'm at the point in my career where I'm better known for what I used to do, which is kind of an age thing. 
but I tell you, coming here is really helpful for me because um, I feel young because Spath was one of the persons that, you know, was instrumental in teaching me fundamentals of cybersecurity a long time ago. Uh, and you're still going really strong, man. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so I'm impressed, uh, and I feel young. So, uh, so thank you for that. Uh, it was, uh, it, it was, uh, it was worth it. So, uh, I'm going to share with you um, my philosophy, and I'm going to start with a definition of what resiliency is. See, resiliency when I started was very simple: no security breaches. And at, at a point in time, you know, a couple of decades ago, that was reasonable. It's not reasonable today. Um, and as a matter of fact, many say that we're losing the war in cybersecurity uh, to the criminals and to the nation state sponsored threat actors. And there's a pretty good argument for that and some compelling uh, reason for that, which doesn't, it isn't all that inspiring uh, to be a cybersecurity professional, right? And so uh, at least some of you. Of course, most of, most of the students are in the back. Is that, they just know more. Is that why? Is that, uh, so most of you that, that are students today, it's not all that inspiring, you know, a motivation to think about. You're going to join a losing cause, right? That, that, it's not all that compelling. Uh, and so what I'm suggesting to you is uh, change the definition of resiliency for an enterprise. And resiliency for an enterprise, from my definition, is an enterprise that can recover quickly with minimal business impact, uh, which means that you're going to have many security incidents. So the enterprise that I work for, uh, just in the cyber side, we have 300 a year. Uh, so that's the average of what we have on an annual basis in terms of security incidents. We also have a lot of synthetic security incidents. Anybody know what a synthetic security incident is? Okay, I'll, t I'll explain that to you. Uh, I, I don't know how widely used term that is, but uh, it's very simple. When you test a control, that's a synthetic uh, incident. So if you do a red team review, that's a synthetic incident. So uh, capturing lessons learned from incidents is kind of essential. Uh, and I mentioned that resiliency is where we change a lot. So here's part of my philosophy, which uh, is basically respond quickly. Uh, which is essentially building into an enterprise the same fundamental mechanisms that are in place in your body, in your immune system. So you get exposed to bacteria and viruses uh, every day. Uh, and the way your body responds to that is your body sends antibodies to attack the bacteria that enter your system. And uh, your body recovers and responds, sometimes you know, without any side effects whatsoever. Sometimes you might catch a cold uh, as a result, but uh, you get better. Now, the better your immune system is, the less you feel the effects of getting exposed. Enterprises need an immune system that allows anyone at any level to surface a problem, and anyone at any level to be able to solve a problem. Uh, solving a problem, improving processes to make processes more efficient and effective, well, that's resiliency. And your cybersecurity practices can be the best in the world. If you don't have a foundation of being able to discover big problems, talk about big problems, even in the boardroom, uh, and then solve uh, big problems, doesn't matter how good your security controls are, you'll never achieve uh, resiliency from an enterprise perspective. Um, 
So um, I'm an acquired taste for as a CISO. I'm just telling you that because one of the first things I tell the board, and I did this recently for the CVS board, is I said, I guarantee you, you will have more security incidents, which typically isn't a compelling you know, sales tactic if you want to get a CISO job. Uh, but the reason for that is uh, because we'll put controls in place that have a better uh, opportunity to find uh, uh, control breaks. Uh, control breaks are where controls aren't working. Uh, synthetic controls are part, synthetic uh, incidents are part of that. Uh, and part of it is because you have better diagnostic uh, tools because we'll know what risks there are. Um, so the other thing is I don't follow what my peers do. Um, and I listen to a lot of smart people, SPAF being one of them, uh, that's have you know tremendous impact on what I do. Uh, but I pay little attention to what uh, my peer group does, specifically what controls they're using in their environment. Now, the reason for that uh, is largely uh, a threat actor uh, is somebody that I'm trying to create friction for. Uh, and so some of that friction comes from having controls in my environment that aren't in other environments. Um, and, uh, and I also use early stage companies to drive innovation in uh, control design because that's where the innovation comes from, uh, just largely for economic reasons, and I'll, I'll explain that. Um, so what I'm going to share with you in terms of what I do, uh, please shred it, challenge it, uh, you know, throw your best uh, challenge at it. I'm fine with it. Uh, but I, I, again, I, what I'm doing is not what my, most of my peers uh, do. So uh, I mentioned this in the uh, panel that we had, the difference between compliance-based and risk-based. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, you're familiar, I think, with these uh, NIST frameworks here, um, uh, these uh, standards. And from a risk standpoint, if we just look at email, I mentioned the DMARC case. I won't <coughs> mention that. Uh, but these other examples are unconventional controls. They're not part of a risk framework. Uh, in some cases, you've never seen them before, but they're highly effective at driving trust into an email system that all of us are using today that doesn't have a whole lot of trust uh, in it. In fact, uh, if we look at the conventional side of the house for email, specifically phishing, which is the number one threat vector of any enterprise uh, today, what the authoritative sources tell us is teach your employees in an enterprise to recognize phishing attacks and kind of the human firewall construct of uh, you know, being smarter. Um, so let's look at that for a minute. In my organization, we have a world-class capability at teaching people how to recognize phishing capability. Where we do phishing tests, simulated tests, synthetic incidents, another example, when we share phishing emails with someone and see if they click on it, we're at between 5 to 7% of people responding on the bait of the phishing email. As a reference point, 10% uh, is world-class, okay? So we're in the world-class level in terms of teaching people to recognize phishing emails. But if we look at what that actually means, that means 5 to 7% of everybody that clicks on it 
gets hosed, right? They're owned, right? And that's the best that we can do. So does that sound like a sustainable model to you? Because it doesn't to me. Email's kind of important to my enterprise. Is it important to yours? So why are you spending money and time to teach people when the best that you can do is about 10% of people are still going to click on it and get owned, right? It's not a sustainable model. It happens to be what our conventional wisdom and controls tell us to do. Every authoritative source says to do this. There's a better way. The better way is to put trust into the email system by using unconventional controls. Unconventional controls don't exist in the risk framework, and they're not discussed by authoritative sources. But an example is, if you write a script attached to your email gateway that takes a feed from an Intel provider that lists every domain registered, and then you flag any email coming from a newly registered domain and don't deliver it for 48 hours, you now have eliminated a large percentage and source of your phishing emails and your spam. Why? Because any uh, criminal that sets up a new domain sends the majority of the email in the first 48 hours, because after that, the spam filters catch up and figure it out. So they're cycling through new domains. So no legitimate domain sends mass email on day one. Day one, you set up the domain. You got to make sure it works, right? You send email to your buddies or you know, to the administrators. That's it. You're not sending massive email. So all you have to do is drop that email. The business impact is like minimal. And it's a simple script that you write. It's not a conventional control, but it works. Right? It's kind of a bootstrap kind of approach. That's an unconventional control. And that's the difference between compliance-based security and risk-driven security. I'm going to show you a couple other uh, examples of that. But here's the deal. There's a big gap between these two. And it's getting bigger. And if you want resilience, you've got to be over on this side. You've got to use unconventional controls if you want to avoid major security, uh, the business impact of security breaches. Now, any policy wonks in the room? Anybody recognize this one? That would be no. OK. Not any policy. That's OK. That's, that speaks highly of you as an audience, just so you know. <laughs> if you answer that question, then I know you're a really true geek. So 800-177 is actually trusted email. It's a, and it's actually DMARC. It's what I mentioned earlier. Uh, and NIST came out with this uh, in, uh, let's see, was it three years ago? Uh, so it's an example of an unconventional control that became a conventional control now. And eventually, unconventional controls do become conventional controls. It just takes a cycle uh, of time before the standards are updated. So uh, if you're investing here, eventually they become conventional controls. Okay, so I'm going to give you an example here where... Uh, this is uh, the insurance division of CVS, uh, we, and this is like four years old or five years old, this data. So we had 29,231 servers sending us email every day, and we treated every server the same way. That's why they're all gray dots there, right? So then we did some filtering of the servers based on the domain attributes of the sending domain, not the attachments, right? Not any campaigns or anything like that. We looked at pure uh, attributes of the sending domain. And what we discovered 
is a breakdown where 14,526 senders of email to us on a daily basis are sending malicious email. So instead of just letting that email in, we decided to filter that email and not deliver it. Now, when you don't deliver that email, the user doesn't see that email. So if the user's not seeing the 14,000, you know, the email from 14,000 plus servers that sending, and then we're talking about, you know, millions and millions of email messages that aren't being seen, what happens to the experience of the user using email? It's improved. There's less clutter. There's more legitimate email. You respond and react to the email. You start to trust the email more. So these are unconventional controls that actually add trust into your email ecosystem rather than extracting trust out at a cost. So the second um, control that I'm going to cover today is relatively new. It's in production today. And it's basically about 50% of the phishing emails that get through all of our other filters uh, are stopped by this control. And we're tuning the algorithm. And over time, we think that we're going to get that up into the 90s. Uh, so uh, we'll, we'll take phishing emails and, in our enterprise and, and take them down to a trickle. Uh, and the way we're doing it, uh, the there's four types of phishing. Uh, there's four tactics that you can use to uh, send a phishing email. Uh, spoofing the domain was one. The display, uh, lookalike domain was the second. Display name deception is the third. The fourth one is the fastest growing one. So if you look at, in your enterprises, the fastest growing uh, phishing emails using this tactic, the tactic is simple. Uh, I'm going to take credentials from my friend and to my friend's email, and I'm going to send. Do you have any friends in the room here? I mean, I know they're friendly, but do, do you know anybody in the room here? Yeah, this guy thought so. Okay. So, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send an email, but I own the credentials to her email, and I'm going to send it to you. You get email from her all the time. A lot of times it has some pithy humor that's really cute, and you look forward to that, but this time I'm going to be sending the email. You're not going to know about it, and you're going to think, that it's the email coming from here. So you're going to trust it a lot more as a result of that. And it's going to get through all the spam filters and all of the inbound filters because it's a legitimate email account. Nobody knows that it's not. I just own the credentials for it. So I'm sending email from a compromised email account. That's the fastest growing segment. And most commercial fraudsters are using that technique more and more. There is no control today necessarily that we have in place. So we have to design a control to stop that particular tactic. Because the other three tactics that I shared with you are all stopped by the unconventional controls that I shared. But this last one is a bit more challenging. So what we're doing is we're basically, we created this algorithm based on 200 billion emails that get sent a year across all enterprises. And we are now filtering the email based on attributes of how the email message was written compared to what is normal by the email account owner. So your smart, you know, concise, pithy kinds of 
emails that you're accustomed to establishes a pattern that we can represent mathematically. My blunt, lousy English you know, types of uh, uh, emails that I write in your account don't map to what is the norm that you typically use. And that flags a risk score that's a deviation from what the pattern is. And that risk score is fed into the inbound email filtering capability. And we decide what to do. If the risk score is high, we drop it and don't deliver the email because it's from a compromised email account. If the risk score is low, we send it through unfettered. So what we're doing is we're mapping a bunch of attributes on the actual email that's being sent and whether the email gets distributed to a large number of people or a small number of people or the specific people, all of that is being mapped in this algorithm that allows us to map the, uh, the email itself to the account owner and pr pr provide some sort of credibility score that we can apply on the inbound side. So we're doing that uh, today. Uh, and um, again, we're, we're at a point where 270,000 employees and uh, I get somewhere between four and seven phishing emails that get through all of the controls that we have in place today on that basis. Um, and I think that's pretty good, but I've been measuring that for five years and it's as good as we've ever gotten. And any of you can do better than that, I'm, I'm all ears. Um, so uh, I mentioned security incidents and we're really, uh, we're, we're, we manufacture incidents. Our incident response process has this fifth step here, which is lessons learned. There is no better way to learn about the effectiveness of your controls than an incident. So don't let it go to waste. Celebrate it. Uh, we get excited when we have security incidents because we get to learn something. And we get to learn something that we don't learn every day, and that's positive. Now, a lot of people think of security incidents like the sky is falling and, you know, got to go find a new job. In our case, we look forward to this. We celebrate the fact that we have an incident because we get to harvest the lessons learned, and we turn them into remediation plans that we track and measure. So an example is uh, we had a uh, security incident. These are examples of the uh, finding, uh, which is kind of the lessons learned, the remediation item, who owns it, and we track the target dates. Uh, for all of those 300 incidents that I mentioned to you, all of this is tracked in terms of the remediation effort. And because we learn something from the incidents, we change and adjust our priorities on the allocation of scarce resource to the highest risk based on what we learn from the incidents. This is the most valuable source of information we have, except for synthetic incidents. Synthetic incidents are red teams that we're doing or uh, other internal control testing that we do where we discover that a control is not work, and then we follow the same process, capture the lessons learned and go through this. So the control break is essentially where you in the cybersecurity organization determine that a control is not working effectively. And you treat it like an incident, you harvest the lessons learned, and you implement a remediation plan to fix whatever you can do to fix that control. Now, if someone else discovers that, then it's an auditable, right? An auditor or a regulator discovers that. A little more pain associated with that. But frankly, 
you should be able to have uh, some rings of control review that are baked in. So what we do is we, have, uh, we take the top risks for the enterprise or in each individual business, and then we identify the key controls, the key top controls, or the top key controls that relate to those risks, and we test them specifically every quarter. We rotate that every quarter, so we're testing always the top um, controls that align to the top risks, and we discover control breaks. And they're a lot less painful when you discover them, when auditors don't discover them. You allocate resources to fix based on that. So I'm going to um, change the paradigm a little bit, and I'm going to talk about two things that really don't belong together, passwords and people. <laughs> now, we have 60 years of history using passwords to protect the enterprise. And by and large, it's done, it's done pretty well. Uh, passwords have done pretty well. Um, but um, the unfortunate thing is um, that for all the 60 years, passwords uh, are based on a fundamental principle. The fundamental principle is that you are the only person that has or knows your secret. That's the principle. And for 60 years, that's served us well. Unfortunately, that principle or premise today that he's the only one that has his password is no longer valid. And in fact, every day it becomes less valid. And the reason for that is that about five years ago, criminal syndicates, cyber criminal syndicates, who by definition always look for the easiest way to get into data. Always. They always look for the easiest way. What's the easiest way to get access to data today? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Using a password that's a legitimate credential, however you do, guessing it is good enough, uh, but however you get access to it, if you do, you provide that credential into the system, user ID and password combination, and what does the system do? It trusts you. That's what all our systems are designed to do. And the reason for that is um, authentication, when we learned technology a few years ago, um, technology taught us that authentication was an event. It had a beginning and had an end and a binary outcome. And for all of these years, that's baked into the way we think about authentication. And it's baked into the fabric of every authentication control that we use in the enterprise today. It's obsolete. It's obsolete simply because every binary control can be defeated. So if I'm taking uh, user ID and password and I'm adding onto it a SMS push of a one-time password to a mobile device uh, and the user, consumer, who always gets inflicted with the security control, the user has to take that password, enter it into the website if they're using a website, and then they, they get in, right? Well, what if uh, the criminal, the cyber criminal, is using the SS7 vulnerability and he's sending that one-time password to their, the criminal's mobile device, not the consumer's, and now you have binary controls that automatically trust the bearer of the credential with the one-time password. Every binary control can be defeated. So are you creating friction for the uh, threat actor? Yes, a little bit. 
you're also creating friction for the consumer at the same time, or we are, and we have a well-established track record as security professionals for doing just that. However, you've been teaching a long time, Spaff. Is it your experience that people have an easier time learning something or unlearning something? So unlearning is hard, isn't it? Right? Unlearning is hard. Um, I, I have to ask you to unlearn something. Do not assume that authentication is an event with a beginning and end and a binary outcome. Assume authentication is a continuous process. It doesn't have a beginning or an end, and it's continuous. And the reason I'm asking you to do that and unlearn the wisdom that was prevalent for 60 years is because we'll never solve authentication unless we think differently about it. Uh, and this is why passwords and people don't get along very well. I mean, I am a security professional. I have over 100, maybe, uh, I don't know, 160 passwords for different sites and mobile applications. I use the same password along, amongst many different sites. I even have a password manager, and I still do it. And I know all you are doing it as well. And I know that because the criminals know that, because they started harvesting uh, credentials five years ago, and now they have billions, billions of credentials available today. So they're doing something called credential stuffing. I hate when that happens. I pushed the wrong button. This was an operator error, by the way. This wasn't because I was actually told not to do this. Uh, a little bit better. Um, and so um, we came up with a new authentication capability based on this notion of continuous authentication. Uh, and the interesting thing is it doesn't add friction to the end user. It actually removes friction because it eliminates passwords. Um, and if you eliminate passwords, you also eliminate cost of password reset. So it actually saves money uh, implementing this capability. So let me get this right. It removes friction from the end user and it saves money. And oh, there's better security? What's not to like? Come on. Show me the fine print here. There's got to be something in there that's bad. Well, here's what it does. It takes behavioral attributes. Now, there's a fundamental principle that you have to kind of subscribe to. Behavior doesn't lie. That's what we believe. Behavior doesn't lie. And we're applying that here by saying, if you have a mobile device or a web app, what we're going to do is we're going to capture attributes about your use of the device and how the device is configured. And we're going to take those attributes and turn them into a mathematical representation of the attribute data. And we're going to compare that in real time to an established pattern. So we do that with 30 to 60 of these. And then we take the 30 or 60 scores, deviation scores, comparing the pattern against real time. And we turn that into one risk number. And we feed that risk number to the app. And the app decides how much access to provide you in real time based on what that number is. And the reason the risk engine creates just one number 
is for different apps, they have different thresholds of what you want in terms of privacy or security, so you can modulate that with the same risk number. And we've implemented this across all mobile and uh, web applications that face the consumer, uh, and uh, it's in use today. Now, we did two things that aren't necessarily relevant on the slide here. Um, using a very important tool in the design of this capability. The tool that we used, here's the punchline, were our values. And you say our values, that's not a tool, but in this case it was a vital design tool because we're taking attributes of your use of technology. We're venturing into the realm of the creepiness factor. Right? So if an enterprise is using your behavioral attributes, like maybe attributes from your uh, watch, your iWatch, they're feeding biometric information into an, a risk engine, potentially. And now let's see, we're an insurance company, and we could use that information to price our insurance policies. Right? Now that's clearly in the realm of creepiness. Right? It's, that's big brother type stuff. We don't want that, right? So we made two choices. The first choice is we decided only to use benign attributes. And I locked my chief privacy officer in a room, and I said, you're not allowed out of the room. She had her whole team in there. Until you choose the attributes that are available on this uh, spreadsheet, there's about 160 of them, I said, you have to choose the ones that are benign, that if they ever got exposed in the internet, they wouldn't have any impact on a consumer or an individual. <coughs> And they went through it, and it was tough to make a trade-off decision, but they came out with about 60 attributes. And those are the attributes that we use. The second decision we made is we weren't going to store any attribute information. So if our risk engine got hacked, there's nothing in it that can impact a consumer from a privacy standpoint. We turn every attribute into a string of numbers, and we just compare two strings of numbers together to get the risk deviation score. So if our risk engine was hacked, there's nothing in there that impacts. Now, those two decisions had nothing to do with anything except our values, because our values said we want the consumer to trust the fact that they're, we're going to protect their information. So we want to improve security, remove friction, and we want them to trust us. So that's why we made those decisions. There is no technical reason. It added technology complexity to the project. It added time to the project. But from our standpoint, it's the right thing to do. Does this sound futuristic? No? I'm glad you said that. There are 4 million people using this today. There'll be 40 million by the end of this year. There'll be 150 million uh, in two and a half years. So uh, this is not futuristic. It is in production today. Uh, and getting back to what we talked about in the panel in terms of economics, we are ratcheting down our customer service calls for password resets because there are no passwords to reset. Uh, and in any large enterprise, password resets are pretty high, uh, pretty high call volume and percentage of call volume. Uh, so that's dropping. So our costs are going down. And our consumer experience is going way up. No passwords to remember. Now, the other thing we did is we, um, uh, we used a, a standard. We adopted a standard that basically says 
whatever biometric you use on your phone. So you've chosen this phone, this device, and you've chosen a biometric on there, right? So whatever your choice is, we're going to take that as one of the factors that goes into the risk engine. So you make the choice. You can, if you're using an iPhone, you can do Touch ID or Face ID, or you can do the combination of both. That's your choice. Whatever choice you make, we take into our risk engine following a particular standard that allows us to do that. So you can make whatever choices you want. Your carrier can make whatever choices they want in terms of the bi biometric on the device. Doesn't matter, that becomes part of your user experience. So once you, uh, if you do Touch ID, once you put your finger on the device, you're into the app. There's nothing else you have to do. Everything else that I've shown you is in the background. So that's the advantage of having a positive user experience. And all of this is simply because you're not the only one that has your password. Um, so this is the technology behind it. And there's a number of early stage companies. So if you don't know the names of some of these uh, companies, don't worry about it. Um, some, of them, they, some of them are getting pretty big, but a lot of them are uh, relatively small. And that ties to my philosophy of using early stage uh, companies. Um, and I'll tell you why. Uh, and it comes down to economics, which is what we were talking about in the panel uh, of how economics and security are kind of tied together. Um, let's say you're a software manufacturer, a software, commercial software producer, and your software is sold to the enterprise, to the enterprise market. Um, the economics of the software industry drive you to allocate your scarce resource, developers and product managers, to uh, achieve the best outcome, and in this case, sell to the broadest part of the enterprise market. And if you can sell to the broadest part of the market, you're going to be profitable. And that's true for every software manufacturer. If you look at security and the enterprise security market, and you look at the broadest part of the enterprise security market, it's the dumbest. What that means is it's the least sophisticated. And so large commercial software providers have to, based on the law of economics, allocate their scarce resource to serve the broadest part of the market, which is the dumbest. So if you want innovation in unconventional controls, it ain't coming from this part of the market. It's, it can't. It has to come from early stage companies, which, by the way, early stage companies get bought by who? Large market share leaders, right? Because they know the game, right? They're smart people. It's not that they're sm not smart people. I'm not disparaging any large software manufacturer. I'm purely acknowledging the economic laws of the jungle, and I'm choosing as a CISO to work with early stage companies that will design something based on my use case, not a use case to fit the broadest part of the market. And early stage companies will chase any use case because they don't have any customers. And so they're going to do what you want them to do. And that's where innovation comes from. And look, I'm wrong sometimes. Like I chose Bromium at one time. And uh, you know that never paid off. But I'll tell you this, I chose a lot of other companies where I'm spending nickels and dimes and getting a huge return like these companies here. 
um, that are you know delivering. So the reality is, I'm looking for a design partner to design based on my use case, um, and I don't really care what happens after that. If they're successful in the market, God bless them. I'm happy for them. Uh, but eventually, they're going to get big and get bought by somebody I don't want to deal with. <laughs> That's just the, the nature of the, of the beast. Uh, so they build a use case, then they build multiple use cases, and multiple use cases satisfies the funnel. Again, the broadest part of the market, they have to do this. Uh, and if they're good at what they do and treat their shareholders correctly if they're a public company, they will do exactly this, and they have to. Uh, and so that's not necessarily what I want. Uh, what I want is uh, something that has innovation. So I'm going to give you another example, um, and uh, unconventional versus conventional controls. Privilege user monitoring, some people call it insider threat, um, <laughs> call it what you will. Um, the best practice uh, according to conventional controls and authoritative sources are when you grant access to a system administrator, domain administrator, um, an access uh, manager, uh, a privileged user of any kind, uh, what you should do is make sure that an alert or a record goes to the SOC, alerting them to the fact that somebody has privilege and is using that privilege. Uh, this is conventional, uh, you know, conventional controls tell us to do this. Okay. That is the dumbest thing in the world. And the reason it's the dumbest thing in the world, does anybody have a SOC analyst that um, has too little to do? Anyone? Anyone? No, it's like SOC analysts struggle to keep up with the information that they have, right? So you want to add more information that's absolutely useless to them? So the auditors love this control. It's useless. It wastes time and money. Don't bother. However, if you took the same information and shared it with the boss of the privileged user who has context, who knows what should be done, how it should be done, and when it should be done, your boss, their boss, would know right away if that's an anomaly, um, because they have the context for that. So what we do, uh, what we've done, is we implemented a large data lake. Uh, and it's like a UBA capability. Uh, we did a lot of the development because it was an early stage company. This is about three or four years ago. But there are a lot of products today that are a lot more mature. Uh, so you don't necessarily have to build it. Um, but we did. And we took all this information into this data lake. Uh, and um, we got identity, account, entitlement, roles, uh, and then log activity, physical access, DLP alerts. We took, uh, uh, and by the way, every registered user of our network uh, has a profile that's a risk profile based on all this attribute information. Uh, so we took physical access, we took web browsing, we took uh, email, plus the entitlements for uh, everybody, everything that they're entitled to uh, and how they use, what their behavior is of using the entitlements, all that factors into a risk score, and every single registered user has a risk score. When they become a privileged user, we apply the risk score, and when we see uh, data uh, or anomaly, uh, when they have privilege, we send this email uh, to their boss. And uh, it doesn't take a rocket science to figure, scientist to figure out that you know, green is good and red is bad, right? So you've, 
you click on one or the other. If what the person is doing is legitimate, you click on green, it goes into updating the model, and then that's not alerted on in the future. If it's red, their privilege is revoked automatically. There's orchestration to initiate a security incident. And so all they have to do is read their email and choose one or the other, and they're the subject matter expert that has the context. So you've got you know, privilege user monitoring based on this. Now, if there's three, it's generally somewhere between two and three, uh, anomalistic <coughs> events for the privileged user in real time, the model decides to revoke privilege immediately and initiate a security incident where there's orchestration. There's no human involvement at all. Why is this important? Um, some companies that got hit with NotPetya had 15,000 servers knocked over and bricked in 90 seconds. There's no human then on the planet that can operate that quickly. So the model is actually doing this for us. And the model here is a machine learning, unsupervised machine learning algorithm uh, that's running. Today we have over 400 machine learning models running in production on nine platforms uh, in the enterprise. Uh, and what's happening is that um, I thought, uh, this is, shows how much I know, but I thought when I hired four years ago a chief uh, data scientist to be dedicated to security, I thought he'd be helping me with all these great tools that I had and taking all the log data and making it into something where I could make actionable, like decide on doing different cyber hunting uh, campaigns so I could make better decisions. Uh, so this is what I thought. And what turned out to be the case over time is that we put this capability in place and it ended up driving frontline security controls to where humans don't have to make any decision um, it's making most of the decisions uh, for us, and it's embedded in the platforms. And today, you can buy this or you can build this. So, you know, it, the whole basis is models. Well, what are models? They're just mathematical representation of an event. Um, and it turns out that figuring out events in a pattern and determining whether another event is matching that pattern or not is pretty straightforward from a data science perspective. So applying a machine learning algorithm to doing that routine over and over again actually has some direct applicability to cybersecurity. However, more sophisticated, deep uh, kind of neural net technology applied to identifying anomalies and malware, not so much. <laughs> Doesn't work that well. Uh, and we struggle with that. And it's a part of cybersecurity that, uh, frankly, it, it's not practical. But in the former, it's highly practical, highly scalable, and that's what gives us the 400 machine learning models that we have in production today. Uh, so we can, we've developed, we have uh, maybe out of the 400, maybe there's uh, 150 of them that we uh, bespoke models that we developed ourselves with our uh, data science team. Uh, we bought products that have uh, models uh, built into them. We're doing a lot of that. In some cases, in the UBA case, they, the vendor gives us the model, we modify it, and we put it into our environment. The uh, email that I was showing you earlier, that's an, a model that uh, the vendor produced, and we modified uh, and, and tuned and adjusted in our environment. So what's really happening here is that uh, 
for students, um, you've got to think about a bidisciplinary approach here. Uh, cybersecurity and data science. To whatever degree that you can master capabilities in those two domains, you will never ever have to worry about getting a job for the rest of your life and you'll be able to work wherever you want to work and you'll be able to make a lot of money. Um, so those two things, if you can do those two things, you're golden. Uh, because what's happening is cybersecurity professionals and data scientists are coming together. Um, there's always a role for data science. There's always a role for cybersecurity. Uh, those two things aren't natural. There's no natural affinity there. We find data scientists and we teach them security. That's a lot easier than finding uh, data scientists with security expertise. We have a mix of both. Uh, but this is absolutely strategic to developing unconventional controls in a sustainable way to meet the needs of a resilient enterprise uh, over time. We've got some time for some questions. Um, I'm done with uh, what I've shared with you. I hope this was helpful. Uh, and uh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so the incredibly interesting and fresh uh, perspectives on security. Really appreciated that. Um, so I was listening very carefully to the last part, especially where you said you're, you're, you're harvesting all this data about consumers and building, building models. Uh, and, but there was a paper that I had referred to, uh, I was, I guess, a first speaker yesterday. It was, and you cannot use the AI in the traditional way to learn normal behavior and then you know, detect deviation from normal behavior because learning algorithms require both normal and abnormal behavior. And so where do you get the normal behavior, the abnormal behavior from? I mean, it's just observing the user, well, everything is normal. So I think you may have some answers to that, but I wanted to probe that a bit. Yeah, so I don't look for normal behavior. I okay. look for a pattern. So the models that we have purely determine whether actual behavior matches a pattern and to what degree it either, and actually the way the model works, it just tells us how much it doesn't match, and it gives us a numeric representation of what it doesn't match, and I can do a lot with that numeric rep representation. So that's what we're doing, and it actually, models do that really well. Um, and so I've, I've, you know, there are lots of cases where if I wanted to scan a database and find the color green versus the color fuchsia, uh, I'd struggle you know, for a long time trying to do that. But just trying to find patterns of behavior or behavior that match a pattern, it's, it's pretty easy to do. Okay, yeah. okay thanks. Yeah. When I was uh, uh, back in, uh, Somewhere around 2005, my wife said to me, I was living in Minnesota at the time. Anybody live in Minnesota? Anybody familiar with Minnesota? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I was living in uh, Minneapolis, I was there, and I loved it there, so wonderful. Uh, but um, my, after three and a half winters, or three winters, uh, three and a half years, my wife said to me at dinner, look, the kids and I are moving back east, do you want to come? Yeah. Uh, and I said, yeah, yeah, I think I do. So I moved back east, and the job I got was actually running data uh, analytics for the marketing group of the U.S. domestic card business for uh, American Express. 
now those models that we built back then, they, did, they decayed. <laughs> so we had 500 people just keeping models updated. And they were conventional, traditional. So I didn't realize at the time, but that was the foundation for my security uh, career. Uh, so I owe my whole security career to my wife uh, and Minnesota for that mission. Yeah, question. Yeah, and just uh, in your comments about vendor management, um, when I was at Gartner, we divided clients into three groups, type A, B, and C, with the type A's being folks like you who are willing to go out on the leading edge. What I would want to supplement your advice by, and I'd like your thoughts on this, is that if you are a type B or C consumer, that dealing with startups can put a lot of stresses in unexpected places in your IT organization, like the company may not be around. Um, the benefits could be they're going to give you a heck of a deal for being a reference, but that means they're going to be tracking their muddy feet through your data center every couple of months when they get a client. I, I, I'd like to see the fuller picture on how you see vendor management, especially for folks who want to make that transition. Yeah, William, thank you for pointing that out. You're absolutely right. There's a lot of engineering overhead that I incur and the, a lot of the resources I use are actually embedded in the IT organization. They don't even report to uh, security. Uh, and I, I, this wasn't an easy transition. The first thing I did six years ago was I convinced procurement to change their criteria for evaluating vendors. Because when you evaluate a vendor for an enterprise software uh, capability, you want market uh, size, you want scalability, you want client references, you want financial resiliency. You want all of those things which make perfect sense for cybersecurity early stage companies. None of those things apply. <laughs> so what I do is I evaluate the co-founder and the co-founder's technical ability to attract talent. And the second thing I look at is whether they'll be willing to pivot and adjust and change. And if those two things are in place, I'm good to go. Now the reality is I'm spending resource engineering resource to make them successful. So I'm not just letting them fail on their own. I'm incubating their product development process based on my use case, and I'm creating engineering resources that are helping them mature their product. And that's the commitment that's kind of the, that you don't see, that uh, it's hard to get IT to buy into that, to provide the resource to do that, because what happens is, you know, for every proof of concept that we do with a early stage company, you know, it's probably a 10 to 1 ratio of what we actually put into production. 10 of them will fail for the one that we put into production. So there's resource that we're putting into this that's not, that, you know, is not part of the equation necessarily that needs to be. And so your point is absolutely valid. This is not for everyone. <laughs> this is an acquired taste. Yeah. Yeah, so thank you so much, Jim. I, I was absolutely struck by the same thing. And, and my question actually has to do with IP, intellectual property. If it's your use case... I give it away to everybody. I never, ever I, Is that the answer? I, there's an investment arm at Aetna. They invest in some of the companies. They've got two investments right now. Uh, I, everything that we develop, uh, I share with everyone. Because uh, I was taught this you know, early on. Um, the whole industry has to be resilient. It's not just one company to protect all consumers. And in healthcare, we want to protect your health information regardless of what provider you're using. 
And that means changing the entire industry and rising, you know, rising the level of resiliency across all companies. So I give away everything that we do, which is why I talk at things like this. So you go to the board and you say, I don't care about IP. No, I, that I care about IP and developing IP for my use case to keep me gainfully employed. That I really care about. Okay. For commercializing it, I, we don't, we give it away. Okay, so your your agreement with the companies that you're bringing up to really, I'll call it, uh, bring the cutting edge tech, is you own most of it and I own some of it. We don't own any of it. Oh, okay, all right. So in most cases, the vendors own uh, own it and they commercialize it. We don't. Uh, we don't. I I used to do patents years ago. Yeah. Patents are a pain in the butt. Amen. Well, you know. Yes. How many times patents are defended? You got to show up in court. Yeah, oh, yeah. Be a subject matter expert. Never get your name on a patent. It's the dumbest thing in the world, long term. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Thank you so much. Just a couple other little quick ones. So, how many people are you in charge of? Uh, about five hundred. Five five hundred, and then uh, how many layers? Yeah, it's a good question. About six, maybe five to six, depending on uh, some of the operational functions have more layers, but yeah. Thank five, you so much. Six. Yeah, thank you. How are we doing on time? We can take two more here. Two more? Can I collect money for these? <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Fascinating idea. I'm wondering how long does it take to gather the information for the behavioral profile? I'm thinking you hire someone in who's going to have well, in military terms, would be like top secret, secure, compartmented information. I assume you can't wait around for two years before they can get to that. Yeah. Uh, thank you for asking that question. That's a great question. Uh, it's about two weeks in terms of behavior, but it's dependent upon the frequency of the transactions. And unfortunately, in healthcare, you guys don't go to the health plan website more than six times a year, I've noticed, you know? And it's usually around open enrollment. That's about it. Uh, and so we actually create incentives to create more interaction with both mobile and web uh, activity for explicitly this reason, because we need more data to build the, the patterns. But generally speaking, it's about uh, 10 business days uh, that it takes us to have a model that we're highly confident in. So in the meantime, we actually give a PIN, password, but uh, you know, one time, or a, not one time, a PIN, that we give at registration, and then they use the PIN. But most of them, within the first day, they use the biometric. They just use that. And so we rely on the biometric uh, and a PIN if they choose that during, um, once they register for about the first couple of weeks, and then the model kicks in after that and, uh, and does everything in the background. So it's a good, good uh, question. The identity proofing is the weakest part of this model. Uh, and so we're looking at a um, couple of alternatives right now of uh, taking a picture of your driver's license and a picture of yourself and mapping both uh, and um, using that as a verification process for identity proofing. Uh, so that's one option. There's a couple of other options as well. Uh, but trying to solve the identity proofing in registration problem is actually buying us the time to use the model. So it's a good, real good question. Last question, Jim. Okay. You've got a whole bunch of really good and interesting unconventional controls, but we also live in a world where there are a lot of people who are comfortable with the conventional. Yeah. So how do you convince the auditors not to ding you? How do you convince the board to allow you to go with this kind of approach? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that question because, uh, and both have different answers. Uh, so the auditors um, I teach, 
Um, it's something I learned in financial services. If you teach regulators um, new advanced techniques, they always go to you first. And they never give you a hard time because they're there to learn. The people they give, the enterprises they give a hard time on are the ones after you. Because that's when they start to apply what you've taught them, and that's when it gets a little bit more painful for the enterprise. So I never have a problem. Now, in this case, we're using a lot of models as an example. So there's a methodology called CRISP. Uh, it's not that you need to remember an acronym. It's a methodology to prove the efficacy of a algorithm. And it's what auditors have to be equipped with to determine whether these controls are effective or not. You can run all the sample tests that you want. At the end of the day, you've got to test the efficacy of the model. And so I teach auditors. We have a class that teaches audit. And our audit professionals, I treat them like cousins. Like I, some of our security people, professionals, go into audit. And some come from audit into cybersecurity. And we teach the same curriculum for, for both. Uh, they're, they're kindred spirits, if you will. But you have, we, for unconventional controls, I have to teach. Now, the board uh, is a little bit different. The board, I have to teach them how to operate their iPhone. <laughs> now, now, I know it sounds crazy, but you, to talk to them in terms that they can understand in their daily life, and most board members are older than I am, which means old as dirt, right? So um, they're not of the... <laughs> you know, the generation that uses technology. So you have to do basic, simple uh, things like that. And you have to show them that um, their personal liability is not at risk. Those are the two things that they primarily care about. And look, I have experience with some absolutely some of the best, most wonderful people in the world that I've ever met have been part of uh, my board at different times. Tremendous respect for them. But I have to spoon feed the information in, in a way that they can understand it. And that's fundamentally different than an, a regulator. It's fundamentally different than an IT professional. And it's, it's different. Did that answer your question? Yes. Thank you, Jim. OK. Thank you. I hope this was helpful. God bless you. Thank you. OK. Thank you, Jim, for helping us close, begin to close down our session. I would be remiss if I didn't give a big shout out to our, our serious team, Mike, Adam, Lori. Uh, they they kind of kept this program running for not only the last two days, but for the uh, several months in advance as we, as we prepared for this. So I, I want to make sure we recognize them. Um, if you are part of the serious seminar class, make sure you find us and let us know you are here so we can check you off the roster list. Sign up sheet is in the back. Lori has it. Uh, the symposium next year in 2020 is April 14th and 15th. Mark your calendars. And with that, unless Spaff or Dave or Joel has any other comments they'd like to make. In that case, I want to thank every one of you for coming. I really appreciate the time that you spent with us these last couple of days. And we look forward to seeing you next year. Thank you. Thank you.